Here we go. Counting down in five, four, three, two, and one. Jason Wingard, welcome to Camp Talks. I do. You're all right. I am buzzing, Jason. Thank you so much for doing this for me. No problem. No problem. I mean, not like we've got much on, is it? It's a godsend, isn't it? <laughs> and you get a call and go, can you do it? I'm like, yeah, I'm free. I'm not doing <laughs> much at the moment. Well, that's it, because, you know, me now I'm obviously sat in my boxer shorts, but you wouldn't know that. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. Jason, how, how has lockdown been for you? Because obviously, you know, you're an independent film director. Um, you know, you've done, done many incredible pieces of work. And suddenly lockdown, I mean, has that put a stop to a lot of your projects? How, how have you been? Has it been six months already? I think it's been six months. It's been six months, hasn't it? But, you know, actually, um, lockdown's been pretty good for me because I was busy on a couple of things. So the first thing that I did was um, just before lockdown, I got a call from a friend at Emu Films and they said that they've got a script that they were having trouble with. Which writers did I use to work on stuff? And I said, well, if let me have a look at it and I might do it. And luckily I took that, that job on because it ended up being a complete rewrite of a feature script. Oh, wow. And so, um, yeah, anyway, so I've rewritten a, a feature script. <laughs> Um, and that's going into production in Mauritius in September. And wow. it's a weird thing for me to take on because it was a period piece as well. So it was outside of my comfort zone. But, I, you know, I think we did a, quite a good job of turning that script, script around. And I mean, then, how, how, do you, how do you go about sort of turning someone else's vision around? I mean, well, it, it's, it was interesting because, you know, um, when I spoke to the the producer at the time, he the, he said, well, just don't change the structure, change whatever else you want. And I said, well, fine, that, actually, that gives me some guidelines. So although I changed the structure a little bit, I didn't, basically, it's the same story, just told in a slightly different way. Interesting. So, so, so Jason, how do you go about restructuring, or not, not even restructuring, but, you know, as a, as a young filmmaker myself, um, you know, I, I've, I've not got the experience yet of actually seeing my work from paper to the screen. But, yeah. you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of story beats and the idea of outlining things. I mean, how do you approach something like this? Well, it's, it's a simple thing that I've got simple rules and guidelines. I mean, I'm often I'm going... First of all, when I'm speaking to filmmakers and I'm reading their scripts or hearing their ideas, I, the first question I always ask is, what do you want to say? And why do you want to say it? You know, and if you can't answer that, then your script's not ready. You need to know the absolute basics. So really, I knew what I wanted to say. So first of all, I read this script. I thought, well, what's this script about? Um, and I didn't think that the writers knew could answer that question when they'd written that draft. Um, or they could, but it'd be, you know, woolly, it'd be a big woolly explanation. Mm -hmm. And it should be just one thing, really. It's yeah. about uh, freedom, it's about uh, revenge, it's about love, it's about lust, it's about, you know, you know, need to know what it is about. And once you know that you've got that anchor, you can answer every single question, including what the actors are going to ask you on set. Mm -hmm. What, what colour hat should I wear? You know, because you're going, well, you'll know the question you know the answer to the questions. I think that you need to know those for that first thing about what you want to say. Another thing that you need to know is what genre is it? You know, because that's what you're going to get asked when you get into the money side of things. What, what is it? Is it comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy drama? Is it a romantic comedy? You need to know what you're going for and where your audience is as well. Absolutely. So those two things are vital, I think. Uh, and so, 
Um, and then you can start to deal with, you know, an even broader thing. Okay, what are the three beats to the story? And so you're kind of working backwards in a way, you know what I mean, from the absolute base basics. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked because uh, I've only just started reading this hell of a book. It's right. um, pretty bloody big. And um, yeah. I picked it up thinking it would be a great read. You know, I'll be able to learn about my favourite movies. And of course, it takes me back to the mythology of where stories came from and right. how comedies were like tragedies at the beginning and and suddenly i'm learning like all of this storytelling stuff which i'm a bit like there is no original stories like everything well, no. seems to be done well to a certain extent yeah but you know the thing is it's it's that's the beauty of it because the, there are original stories and you will come up with original beats throughout those things but essentially you are telling a you know a, a tale that's been told before you know kind of like a, 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 a biblical stories and and stuff that you know has already been been done mm. uh, but you know wouldn't concern yourself too much with with that it's too um you know it just i i used i've I read a lot of those books early on kind of like i don't i don't tend to read those kind of things anymore because you kind of start to go well you start to write them and you start to know it a little bit more yourself don't you and you trust mm. your own instincts this is always uh, lots of scope to learn as well though you know so I've not read that book, but I imagine there'll be similar things in it to most of the other stuff. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, it's, it's a bit of a hard read for me. Uh, I'm d dyslexic, so like for, for me, I, I get the passion to go and buy all the books and then they all sit there looking at me for years. And so I've had this book for about five years and I've just never really kind of got into it, except for lock lockdown, right? It was... Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Most, what I would say to, to new writers, I'd say, what do you want to say and how do you want the audience to feel at the end mm. and go for those two things that's it that's so Jason, it. where did all of this storytelling uh, filmmaking passion come from tell, tell me your origin story well um originally i was a footballer actually so kind of like there's nothing at all to do with with thing i'm just crowbarring that in but it's kind of like <laughs> i was a footballer when i was a young youngster so the first things that i did were all football related until i was probably about 25 26 and then i started to move into to film and i came into film really by accident i didn't i didn't know what to do and i got enrolled on a course in manchester which is a b-tech filmmaking course and at first i was kind of like i hated learning new things and you know and all of a sudden i just started making my own animations out of cardboard cutouts like terry gilliam and we we won an, uh, an award so i did this um the Corner House used to have this student filmmaking competition called Exposures. So I, ex I entered that and uh, we won the animation section with this really crude animation, which wasn't very well animated, I must admit as well. But there was an idea behind it. And the idea was that celebrities had celebrity genitals and they were reproducing more, more celebrities. And it was kind of like a, you know, we did it as this Terry Gilliam attack on the culture of celebrity and, and it, it really worked with people. So uh, and at that time I was doing stand-up comedy as well. So I was working as a stand-up comic. And so mm. I started making short films with um, a couple of people I know, particularly these taxi driver shorts, um, which uh, oh, this is going to complete the story as a circle to this. So I started making these taxi driver shorts with Peter Slater and Irfan Nazir. And last year, like this is 20 years later, 
a friend of mine who's a BBC producer said, oh, um, Carl Cooper, his name is, he said, did you ever do anything with those taxi shorts that you used to do? I said, no. He said, well, do you want to do them for Radio 4? I said, yeah, of course I do. So like the, uh, about two months ago, we did them all for Radio 4. So it was wow. like 20 years in the making. So your idea, never, yeah, so this was very first films that I was making, essentially with just two people. And the reason I made them was because they were simple to make. It was a first thing. It was more about the comedy and mm -hmm. what they were saying. And we just jump cut. It was real crude jump cutting around. It was all to do with the rhythms of their talking and stuff like that. Um, but it meant that I could just film it on my own. All I needed was a handy cam. And so I sat with a handy cam. A handy cam. Jesus, yeah. it took a long time ago now, Jason. Yeah, it is. It was. This was really, I'm talking on little mini DV tapes. We're kind of like, we're going there and I'd just sit in the car and get them to talk. And they're shittily shut. There's no lighting. And it's just, but it, what it starts to get you used to is the rhythms. And you're still telling stories in those the mm. small sections and so they were the first films really that I started to make and when they started to win awards you kind of like you win an award with an animation thing then you win it again with this other stuff and you think start to think well there might be something in this I might I be able to do something you know and so it's a um that's how it started really and then I just started making film and learning a little bit more about the technical side from there so where where did the the love of, of of sort of comedy come from? Because you know, as as much as uh, you've you've made a you know a a, a lot of different films, um, that there, there is this kind of um, is it dark comedy? I don't know if that's the right word. I've made some dark stuff, yeah, a, a mixture of different things. I've done mm. different, you know, genre hops. I've done different things. Mm. And I mean, in in your recent one, um, in another life. I mean, because this is how this all started. You you, you posted this on your Facebook page a couple of days ago. Yeah. Sat there, I watched it. I was blown away, Jason. Honestly, I've never seen a movie that was able to keep me captivated. That's in black and white. <laughs> I, I was I was just like, yeah, this is really really cool. And and it was something about. I mean, obviously, it's a story about the refugee uh, crisis, which. To be really honest with you, I believe that the media in the UK has absolutely hijacked that narrative. And yeah. so it was wonderful to see that you've kind of created a story about husband, wife, trying to, trying to make the way to, to the UK and, and more specifically Birmingham. I mean, is, like, yeah. tell me, how did you research all this stuff? Did you have to go well, there yourself? Yeah, we'd, we, well, what happened was with In Another Life, that, um, we were watching, it's interesting that you said that the media hijacking the story because that's the way that I felt anyway when we were watching the news headlines. I was watching the news headlines about 2014, 2015. And I, I was what, thinking, I've no idea what's going on here. All I, all I keep seeing is people jumping on the back of vans. And that's not telling me what's happening. So I was like, well, how, this is just, there's something weird going on. So I thought the only way to do, to do it, I, so I watched a documentary on Channel 4 called Lorry Hoppers. And the documentary filmmaker was jumping in the vans with the people. And I thought, that's the way to do it. That's, uh, you know, but I thought, well, he's already done that. Why don't I do a narrative version of this where I can tell people's stories from um, a different angle and then people can make their own mind up. Um, but it's a very complicated situation, Calais. But we can get into that a little further down the line. This is the filmmaking side of it. We kind of like, so within a month, I just kind of cobbled together. I had some development money. So I had 20 grand development money from another project that a feature project that was going, looked like it was going to go ahead, but it was stalling. 
And so I thought, well, I'm going to use 10 grand of that and start shooting something now. And I'll recoup that 10 grand and I'll make a trailer when I get back. So we just went out to Calais knowing nothing about it, not knowing whether we could shoot. And we took a little 15 person crew, including two actors. And some of the crew ended up being in the film. So um, Yusuf mm -hmm. is, was originally our uh, Arabic translator. And wow. he ended up being a, one of the lead actors in the film. Uh, because when we got there, we were doing it as a kind of a love story originally. And then when we got there, we realized the camp's really male heavy. You know, it's a male, male centric and it wasn't reflecting the stories that we were hearing there. Mm -hmm. And the stories are kind of about other struggles. And so I did shot for 10 days, came back and I brought it to the editor. And I said to him, he's quite funny. We had a little private conversation. I said, how much of a feature film do you think we've got? And he said, mm, 10 minutes. <laughs> we'd shot for like hours and hours and hours and I was like alright don't say don't tell anyone that we'll tell people that we've got a feature film in the bag and we're halfway there and then <laughs> I said cut me a really nice trailer out of that he cut me a trailer and um, I, then I went and uh, raised the money for the second part of filming Incredible. And the second part of filming we built a, a, a camp so We'd gone out to Calais, we were going in, we're making this guerrilla feature film and you can only take one take in the jungle, right? And it's dangerous as well. There's not, you know, kind of wasn't an easy shoot at all. So you go in and you're going, okay, how do we get the night scenes? How do we do things like this? And so we're starting to write this story now. And uh, for the second part of shooting, we shot for, I think, 12 days. And that was about six months later. And we shot in the UK and we were going to try and replicate the camp. So I went to see Martin Butterworth, who's our set designer. Legendary. Legendary, Annie. He was legendary on this. He said, Jay, why don't you kind of build it on an anti-fracking camp? Now, I'd already been thinking about anti-fracking because I'd done a, doc a documentary on anti-fracking. So I said, that's a genius idea. There was one in Warrington and we just built on top of the anti-fracking site. We, he... Um, got a load of wood for free, got it all delivered down to this thing. We traded off with them, said, look, we'll build you some stuff here now and we'll extend this camp. And he built us in three days, like this mini set. It was wow. incredible. And um, so it changed from a place with like 20 tents and a few little huts on there. And he basically made a little set for us, a little village that we could shoot in. And so we did riot scenes. We did all sorts of things in that set. And then for the final thing, we raised a little bit more money and we went out to Calais again to finish the film up. By that point, the story was coming together and the narrative was coming together. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of cobbled together in a documentary kind of way. It wasn't a normal way of making a feature film. Mm. Um, there, there was an awful lot of footage that, that I, I was always asking myself, did, did he film that? Or was that like, because it was, you know, even the boat scene when they're coming on the shore, I'm like, you know, and so I wonder, like, did you use footage from different places? We use footage from different places as well. I got hold of some footage from RT, who gave us a really good deal. They were wow. great, actually. RT gave us some footage, and they, at the time, were selling some footage on their site for a euro and stuff like that. Now, I knew it wasn't going to cover us for copyright, so I got hold of them and I said, look, I'm making this small film. Can I do a little deal with you? And they, they did, did me a deal for a couple of grand, and it was brilliant because I got loads of great footage. Yeah. 
And so obviously making that's a little bit different to just filming everything, right? So, I mean, so did you kind of have to watch through hundreds of hours of, of footage and pick that, pick that, pick that? Well, it was weird because I was just going to the site and I was going, we need some stuff here. We need some stuff that we haven't got. Mm. So, you know, there's some riot things and stuff where it's really kicking off. And I was like, that wouldn't have been safe for us to bring crew in and stuff like that. But I wanted to pop people's heads a bit and go, well, yeah, they've taken more risks than they actually have. It was a relatively safe shoot, to be honest. I didn't really put the actors at risk at all. Mm -hmm. But um, if you look at the film, it doesn't kind of feel that way in places. No, I mean, it feels terrifying, mate. And, and I think this is the thing. I've, I've been to Namibia uh, before and you know, to see the, you know, the, the poverty in the shanty towns there was a big, a big shock for me. I mean, yeah. it must have been even bigger shock for you just jumping across the pond to bloody Calais. And then, I mean, what was the jungle like uh, for you personally? Well, it was quite a, it's a, it's a strange uh, situation, I think, in Calais. In, in, in the jungle, we, when I, as soon as I got there, I soon realised that um, it was separated in country terms. So there was, uh, so there was probably 20 different nations there. And uh, so you'd have a Syrian section, uh, Eritrean section, Sudanese section, Iraqi section. And so, and to understand why those people were there, you have to understand what's the history in all of those countries, right? So it's a lot easier for people to just look on TV and go, oh, they're just coming for our 35 quid a week, <laughs> you know, over here, they're just going to sign on. And so that's the way that the people's attitudes were, you know, I mean, at the, at the time. They were just writing off the situation. But what I thought right away was in that camp, you lose your individuality really rapidly. And that's interesting because if you're just classified no longer as a Syrian and, and as an individual with a name and you've had that stripped away from you, you're just a refugee and you're just like all the rest without any kind of, you know, that's a really lazy, um, you know, equation of the whole situation really isn't it you know what I mean uh, but that's what most people were doing I realized quite rapidly that not only did I not know a great deal about what was going on people just did not know what was going on in general on the refugee crisis mm -hmm. so they didn't have a good overview so but it was a, a really tricky thing to, to tell mm. and you wouldn't suggest as well there were kind of like there was uh everybody you met there was an angel because it's not like that at all you know there's a, if you've got nine thousand people but if you took nine thousand mancunians and you stuck them in a camp you'd get a, a range of people right mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just random nine thousand people and that's the kind of, kind of these kind of the things i wanted to entertain and 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 communicate for by the film and I'd, i had a lot of sympathy for everybody that was involved in the camp so i'd look at the police officers and i wonder what it was like from their point of view looking down on 3,000 people, even though you've got all of this military uh, gear and, and uh, you, you, your, um, your CS cans and all that stuff and your riot gear, mm. it's still intimidating. So it was a situation that I realized that nobody wanted to be there. The, peop the refugees didn't want to be there. The, um, the truck drivers didn't want to be there. They were intimidated. The police officers didn't want to be there. And they were kind of gaining in their animosity day by day. So uh, it's, it was a really interesting thing. And then the kind of the British government wanted to, to be there. But you kind of are thinking there's a logical way to deal with this is to deal with people's legitimate claims in uh, Calais. 
but then it was being politicized and used as a point for trying to for uh, Brexit, which was to come, and for various other things that were coming. It was being politicized by the Conservative Party and a new kit for Nigel Farage. And uh, they were increasing fear, and then kind of like that coincided with a, a raise in the far right. And you know, so it was a really interesting time to watch everything happen. Yeah, it was quite a horrible time, really, wasn't it? It was a horrible time, but there was kind of like, there was, it was a uh, interesting time to be a filmmaker and making, a, and making a comment on all of this stuff. Because oh, during all of that, what you're dealing with, you're dealing with people, aren't you, on the camp mm -hmm. and why they got there. And that's being buried and buried and further buried. And so nobody really wants to know where they're from and who they are, mm. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. which is a fundamental thing. That's what I've dealt with as a film. Uh, filmmaker and so I had my own political beliefs but I didn't actually thrust those on the viewer too much what it does the film or what it is meant to go well this is a person he has his independence stripped away from him and what would you do in that situation mm -hmm. that's all the questions that it asked really uh, and that puts it that makes that depoliticizes it in a way Mm -hmm. but makes it more watchable as a film, you know what I mean? Because yeah, you know, I, I, entertain as well as make, make a film. I kind of wish I had uh, seen it, you know, but, uh, earlier because, you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I come from down south and I went oh. to Manchester 2010, spent eight years in Manchester, yeah. came back down south and suddenly realised that, you know, the southerners live in a bubble. The northerners are, you know, more than happy to discuss social issues. And this is becoming a bit of um, you know, a theme for kind of, Manchester filmmakers. I mean, particularly with your your latest uh, short film, Pavement. I mean, yeah. this is a, a film about. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know too much, but I've not seen it yet. I did mm -hmm. uh, donate to the Kickstarter. I was right, right in there. Um, but it's about. I mean, Manchester's homeless uh, crisis is just unbelievable. So, I mean, tell me a little bit more about you know that that project because I'm you know m moving on. There, there seems to be a reoccurring theme here that that you want to put a spotlight on something that is, is a real issue rather than something Hollywood want, want to produce. Well, yeah, well, to be fair, even the comedies do that to a certain extent, but we just do it in a slightly different way. Um, but yeah, The Pavement is a short film. It's it's really simple idea. It's, you know, the, it's a simple idea and it's a real simple metaphor. It's just about a, a homeless guy who's gradually sinking into the pavement. And the more that people uh, respond to him in a negative way or in a bad way or poorly, the more he sinks into the pavement. So he just ends up being a face in the pavement at some point, you know. Mm. So he starts outside a bank, he's sat outside a bank, and it's the corporate attitude towards uh, homelessness. And there's one woman who's kind of like dealing with everything as people are coming by, and she can't understand why people aren't dealing with it logically. And the more that people what was interesting about that and the similarity in 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 another life and thing is that i noticed that <clears throat> homeless people often don't have any agency they don't have any say in what's happening to them and 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 what, and what you know and so this is what happens in the short film is things happen to him and he doesn't have a say in what's happening and there's only really one person who talks to him everybody mm -hmm. talks at him and around him and where did the inspiration for this come from? Because obviously, if you only have to walk around Manchester, you know, and I know that over the years, it, the, the scene has changed, changed quite a bit in it. And it's become a bit of a, you know, a hotspot for you know, homeless people to, to come to. I mean, there's, there's charities like Coffee for Craig, who are yeah. like putting on really good services. 
and yet, you know, you still walk around Manchester and you see that, right? You see the, the, that someone slumps well, I mean, into a corner. It's connected. I mean, it, it, well, in my mind, it's connected politically anyway. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going, okay, well, you're gonna, not going to deal with refugees and you're certainly not going to deal with your own people and you're kind of getting this growth in people who are building their own fort and retreating into their own little castles and building a moat and that's not the way to deal with it. Mm. You have to kind of look after everybody and if you don't look after everybody there's consequences and eventually they come for you, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the problems come for you and maybe we'll see that with the virus now. Oh my and, god. But you know the thing is that this is the way that I feel about it is that kind of like you just kind of go in uh, people are scared and so they're retreating further and further into their own little networks, mm -hmm. bubbles, and uh, it's not actually the way to deal with things. You have to look after everybody, you know. Mm. Um, so I was noticing soon, uh, 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 kind of like 2016, 17, there was uh, a rise in homelessness in the streets and this was related directly to austerity, which I thought was an ideological choice as well. So um, you're going, okay. Um, but then you see weird things uh, the, about people who are using homelessness to kind of, uh, as against uh, a way of fighting against, you know, right-wing stuff about, against, um, against uh, refugees. So they'll be like, mm -hmm. why can we give all this money to overseas and not look after our own people? But, you know, and actually there's, there's valid, you should be looking after your own people, you should, but you should be looking after the refugees as well. You know, people in desperate situations should be being looked after. I think that's what decent societies do. You know, that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, I back your opinion fully, Jason. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I did a homeless documentary um, in Manchester um, yeah. many, many years ago. And I just I just went and followed a, a couple of people around for the day and brought them back to my flat. Um, showered them, you know, gave them food and stuff like that. And um, and the interesting thing is, is that you know they'd come back to me the next day and say, "Cam, I've I've lost that phone that you bought me," or, or you know, yeah. or I, I can I have some more money? Yeah. And and it became after a while, this documentary really became such a burden on me. In fact, my girlfriend at the time was like, "Cam, you cannot bring them back to our house." You know, we no. lived in like the Northern Quarter, right? Um, and but you want to help, right? You really want to be able to like do something. Yeah. And as a filmmaker, all you can possibly do is to tell that story and hope that enough people see it right yeah of course i mean and of the who knows what kind of you know complications people have got once they're in that thing and it's not for you to solve everything is it you know you can do something it's a bit like as um one comedian said turning up to an earthquake with a dustpan and brush and you kind of do your little bit and put it in the bag and go right i've done my bit and that's the way that you feel whenever you take on with these major things. But films have a, an opportunity to communicate ideas to people or let them decide how they feel. Mm. So kind of like to go back to that original thing that I said, you know, with pavement, I was like, what do I want to say and how am I going to say it? A really simple metaphor. We know people will know what I want to say and what do I want people to feel at the end of the film, you know? And so it's another thing you go, I want them to self-reflect. And I want them to uh, cry. <laughs> well, it, it so, sounds like you, you knew how to, to move people emotionally, but, but technically, Jason, the, the man is, is sinking into the pavement. So yeah. tell me, what were the technical challenges getting someone to sink into a pavement? Yeah, well, actually, uh, we did lots of uh, tests. We were going to try and do this in a practical way. And we actually built a bath, or Martin built a bath for us. Uh, and uh, Corin actually got in it and we, we did this 
uh, cornstarch test where he was sinking in a, a green screen cornstarch, which would have been a brilliant way to do it. But we just could not control that way of doing it. And if we tried to do that on set and it wasn't working, you know, so it wasn't the way to go. And then so it did tried, work. It didn't work. It kind of worked, but it kind of like it didn't work well enough. Right. For me to kind of go, okay, this is the way that we're going to do this. Um, it was interesting, though. It was an interesting attempt. <laughs> experiment. Uh, it was an interesting experiment, no doubt about it. Um, so then we went on to a different thing, and we, we, we started to think about doing the 3D model, and we got a 3D model made, and that failed. So it wasn't good enough quality. Back so, to the drawing board. Yeah, so then we started going, okay, well, now we'll have to use, you know, we're um, um, After Effects and, and stuff like that. So uh, we used a, a mixture of different people, but Tom Bowen and Tom Sporton, Tom Bowen from uh, Future Works and Tom Sporton, who was, who was working at EM, EMU and he's kind of like a friend of the uh, producers, um, came in. And they did an amazing job doing the After Effects thing, but it took a long time, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It took six months because they've got jobs, other jobs as well, and they can only do little bits and pieces for us. So it was kind of a quite an effects-heavy film. Yeah, but, but it was a good job you had uh, FutureWorks guys there, right? I mean, that's uh, I, I, I went to FutureWorks back in 2013. I oh, yeah. did my uh, post-production degree there. But visual effects-wise, right? Well, I yeah, mean, kind of like a lot of the people that we work with regularly now, Andrew McKee is ex-FutureWorks, uh, Enos is ex-FutureWorks. Um, so, you know, there's, there's people that kind of like have come through FutureWorks who work with us all the time. So it's been a great place for kind of getting people as far as crew go as in, in Manchester. Mm -hmm. And the circuit's quite small, actually, in Manchester. You will bump into the same people. So the filmmakers know all know each other and uh use regular you know crews together and stuff like that you know mm. i feel crazy that i moved to london out, out of the idea that i'd make more money i was like yeah this would be brilliant right you know and, and now i keep thinking manchester's quite nice isn't it i could go back <laughs> yeah i mean, I mean see, well it'll be interesting time because there's no work for anybody at the moment i mean right. I've, got, I've got two projects green lit ready to go but, you know, when I get to do them, it, it might be, you know, who knows? How are we going to go back to work, though? I mean, with the coronavirus stuff, I mean, is it going to be smaller crews? Is it going to be a lot of PPE equipment? How do you think it's going to affect the, the film industry? I have no idea. I mean, the, the main thing at the moment is insurance, I think. Right. Um, is people underwriting all the insurance for all of the productions. Because they're seeing it as a massive risk. But I think yeah, that somebody just... at some point will just do the maths on it and go, well, actually... It's not uh, much of a risk. To say yes, no, it's not much of a risk, and we will do the lot. And we'll, we'll but is it a risk, Jason? I don't know. This is the problem with media. Oh, it's 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 uh, I once again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of like I, I've, I've turned off a while ago because I thought I'm just getting nonsense here, I'm getting fed nonsense from the government. Um, and so those uh, meetings they had or kind of like oh. in the briefings were hilarious. So uh, but you know the thing is, what was clear to me, what I actually I was in London when they did the first announcement. The very first announcement was a big announcement. We wait for two or three weeks, and this is going to be our thing. And they came out and they said herd immunity, and I actually laughed because I was like, well, that's not going to go down well. Two days later, they changed their tune. But you know, by that point, all chaos has hit, hasn't it? You know, it's so nice. I think it's done pretty poorly, to be honest. But. Yeah. 
Uh, well, look, I mean, at least it's given you more material, right? I mean, I, I kind of thought that with, you know, Trump getting in and then, you know, Brexit, I kind of thought it cannot possibly get any worse. Well, and then this. Yeah, you've got the worst people in charge at the worst possible time. Oh, so I bad. My, my point of view is, I mean, kind of, you know, regardless of where your politics are, I mean, kind of obviously I'm a raving lefty. <laughs> kind of like the, um, the, you know, I think you, you need to look after people. That's the message, right, that I've been saying in the films and whatever else. And I have not seen them wanting. What they're trying to do is cover their own backs. That's all I keep saying. Thing is can we just do enough just to cover our backs that's the way it feels to me mm -hmm. uh, as their attitude whereas you look at somewhere like New Zealand where you've got somebody who cares a, a prime minister who really wants to look after people there it's a very very approach there and uh, I think that that's telling and I think kind of like all of the places where people are looking and if the weird thing is that the that these people are, you know you know that they want to get their economy going which is understandable and that's their approach and that's their ideological approach but actually it's been punitive for their their approach to the virus has actually held back the economy mm -hmm. and got, getting back uh, uh, on track with the economy so um, it's really it's difficult a... jason I, I live in a warehouse in north london with yeah. about 20 creatives so you know all of us have been getting fed by the harrow krishnas and like right. You know, genuinely, it's it's a it's an environment that you know I, I'm lucky because I I run a podcasting business, so I, I make yeah. podcasts for people, and that's yeah. not stopped. Um, but most of my mates who are filmmakers, content creators, whatever, you know, they're not getting their their jobs anymore, and they weren't even charging a lot. You know, they they, they were freelancers, so yeah. they were living hand to mouth mostly. I mean, it's it's really kind of scary to think but what the is. next few months is going to be like. It, well, it is. It's going to be scary, and actually, I think that you know. Um, in case of emergency, break the glass and use socialism. We kind of maybe there's an argument now for um, for a, a living wage for people, mm. um, for everybody really. Um, how that would work, I don't know, don't know. But they've they've already uh, done it to a certain extent with these furlough schemes and various mm. other things, and um, they seem to be out of print money whenever they need to. It's quite interesting because you talk to people about economy, the economy and stuff like that, and I know that you kind of like, but they've not really been applying the, the, the normal rules of capitalism for, for 25, 30 years anyway. If right. they want to create money, they just print it, yeah. you know? And so it's, it's um, they're not, America's debt is just incredible. I go to... Some, uh, I, I was when, when I started making films, I started getting involved a lot more in the financial side of it. And finance is a necessary part of filmmaking, right? You know, if you're not into finance and capitalism, and I'm a capitalist, I've come up, I believe that capitalism is good, but not, not the rules of the new capitalism, the new way they can just print money at will. I mean, America's debt, some of this hedge fund manager told me who was financing one of the films, he said America's debt, their entire history, up to 2008 was eight trillion. And he said, just look on um, on um, usdebt.org or something, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, and you can, he said, look at what it is now. It's like a 26 trillion. He said, they've trebled their debt in 10 years. If that doesn't tell you that there's problems coming, then nothing will, you know. I, I don't think it's capitalism anymore. It's cronialism, isn't it? It's the, the cronies of all these mates and mates, you know, you bring your mates in power, you do the mates a favour. It's, it's shocking. Well, it's just 
it's just not working, is it? So you've got to think of new ideas, I think. Well, so we're at that time. I think, you know, I'm not going to have the answers to these kind of things. I'm interested in it. I'm interested mm. in where it goes. But I think that you have a decision, and history tells you as well, that kind of like historically, you can look back at your past and go, well, we tried this route, this divisive route, and it ended pretty disastrously. All the isms. You know? Yeah, you know, but maybe we should try to figure out a way where you can do something positively through this. There's all sorts of things that you could do during this time, which would, the crisis, which would be, you know, um, progressive, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I've, I've had experience working with politicians. So I used to do personal branding, so I used to take care of people's social media. And one of the things that I found really shocking was that it didn't matter whether they were Conservative or Labour, they were still going to the pub together and, and, and being mates, and they were still doing deals. They were still doing getting benefits from, you know, BAE wants to invite them out to Barbados. Yeah. And you're like, well, why would BAE, the missile manufacturing company, want to do that? And it's like, and the next thing you know, they're voting on bombing Syria. I'm like, this shit is just such a farce. Like, and if we only could face the fact that this isn't a conspiracy, this is reality, then yeah. we may actually be able to, you know, well, overcome it. Oh, it is a problem. If you're kind of like your two main things that you produce in the UK are banking and weapons, you know what I mean? It's like, well, what are you going to, you know, where, where's your, your loyalty going to lie? And it's obvious with the uh, how things are, are done at the moment, but it doesn't have to be done that way. You can do things differently. You don't, you know, I know that. But it's like, anyway, it's like a different area. We should just stick to film, shouldn't we? Or talk about film. No, no. Here's the thing, Jason. Is that like obviously uh, you know this uh, history, revolutions, all this kind of stuff. It starts with an idea, and those ideas have to be communicated towards the population via video, words, storytellers, whatever it is. So I think it's a very interesting conversation because, you know, I think everything is going to come from a sense of truth. Well, there's an interesting part of, you know, a lot of my friends, because I started as a stand-up uh, stand comedians, and they're absolutely, you know, where are they going to? They can't find an audience. They can't do what they do. They're not really protected by any kind of um, systems. They're not going to be fun, you know, apply for this fun-making thing as a comedian. It's like, it's, it's so... You know, because filmmakers have still got little pockets of things that we're still going for. We're going, okay, I'll, we put in for a couple of radio things. I did the, the Radio 4 stuff. And, you know, we might even do a little bit more of that. Who knows? You know, and so there's other things that filmmakers can diversify and start to do. But for the comedians, they seem to be on their arse at the moment. It is it is tough. Maybe there's a, a film in there, Jason, uh, about a comedian during coronavirus. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, you know, it's like, um, uh, yeah, as long as I know what I want to say with it. <laughs> but do you think it's right to, to be making making movies about the coronavirus? Do you, do you think that would be... Well, why not? I mean, the thing is that there's gone, there's, there will be a, a deluge of, of ideas, I think, with uh, which are connected to coronavirus. But... I, th I, 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 I was thinking, I probably, if I was dealing with it, I wouldn't deal with it head on. I'd deal with mm. something else that's happening because life's still going on. Yeah. And I've actually quite enjoyed the lockdown period, but at the moment, I, you know, I've got, I don't have the financial worries that some people might have. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's starting to really bite, I feel right now, as we're coming out of it, you know. And we're coming out of it, and it doesn't even really feel like we're out of it anyway. No. It's like it's a ludicrous situation. It's like, well, why are we coming out of it? We're in the same situation we were when we first went down. It's crazy. Uh, it? Into lockdown. 
but you where, know, where, where are you based, what? Jason? Are you, are you in Manchester or are you, are you out in the sticks somewhere? I'm in Manchester. I'm in Cholton in Manchester. And that's kind of basically, um, yeah, where we've been making our stuff. And actually, the, 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 the Radio 4 thing I was going to say, which was the, the first films that I ever made, got made into this Radio 4 show recently. And that's called Where To, Mate. And it's, um, uh, it's no longer online, I don't think, but you might be able to find it somewhere. But, you know, kind of if you guys can pick, pick, pick have a listen to that. We had so much fun doing it. And I because of imagine. lockdown, we were left completely alone to go and make our show. So, uh, and we, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we kind of did a lot of stuff on phones because we can't be in the room, but it's taxi driver stuff. So there were scenes that we did and the actors never even met each other. They were just kind of doing performance. <laughs> It was a pretty incredible way of making it. Absolutely, it was a lot so, of fun. So, would you would you go back to? I mean, like obviously with the the whole podcast revolution, you know, people are are comfortable listening to audio shows. Do you yeah. think that um, with this technology and with the fact that coronavirus has pretty much made production difficult, you reckon you might do a podcast at one point? Do the uh, Jason Wingard show? No, I, you know, I, I'm too far too lazy to do something like that. But you know, <laughs> it, it's. Uh, it does take a certain amount of dedication, doesn't it? Um, I think, no, I'll appear on the podcast. But we actually, we talked about maybe doing a podcast for the show, um, which would be of interest, you know, mm. and maybe dealing with uh, political topics within taxi journeys, mm -hmm. uh, which was quite an interesting idea. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, yeah, maybe do something like that. But, I mean, actually, speaking of before about lockdown rules... I'm imagining that um, certain things can be made on lo under lockdown rules, and certain things are going to really struggle. Yeah, we've got a production at a CBBC show that I'm meant to be doing, and I don't know how we're going to get back into doing that unless the the government underwrite all the insurance, and that doesn't seem that they're going to do so. Yeah, well, it, it must be difficult because I mean, your your recent film, um, Eaten by Lions. I mean, this has had a, a theoretical release. It's had yeah, so many incredible reviews, and and I'm I'm guessing you you were seeing this as kind of your right. Let's let's now smash you know smash the next big budget film. Well, I've got I've got a film actually that I'm meant to be making in which is in in which we're casting at the moment in Portugal, which is my third feature, which is a it's a romantic comedy written by a uh, a really good writer called Andrea Mann. And it's a great script, actually. So, you know, when we're just starting to attach names to it now. Um, and that is next year. That's meant to go in March. But, you know, we're still completely up in the air. We've no idea whether that's going to actually Yeah, absolutely. This TV programme and this, this feature film. And I don't know whether either of them will happen or, or when they will happen. Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose you've got to be optimistic and hopefully that something you know, hope that something happens, but... Um... Yeah, I, I, always, uh, I always like to think of, like, crisis planning, you know, because I'm, I'm a real... Like, if I go and stay in a hotel, I have to know where the fire exit is. Like, even the idea of being in a country that has earthquakes, I have to know where the nearest door frame is or, like, the roof or something like that. So when coronavirus came, I was like, right, I must now just try something different, right? And actually, this is why we're doing this now, because I've been making these remote video podcasts for businesses to communicate during the crisis. So it's been wonderful, you know, I've learned a lot. I, I, I now 100% remote is my business. Uh, but what I really realized is that actually like us filmmakers, 
you know, we need to be collaborating more. We need to be sort of putting our voices onto mediums like this, because, I mean, if you look at things like the HBO um, Chernobyl TV series, uh, I mean, bearing in mind HBO just finished Game of Thrones. I didn't think they were going to come out with something shit. And Chernobyl was wonderful. But yeah. when I look at what was the success behind Chernobyl, I went and looked at the the podcast, the accompanying podcast that the director was talking about how, you know, how he decided particular style things, particular facts. And I suddenly realized that, you know, that you know, movie marketing has kind of evolved to a, a place where, you know, traditionally podcasting, it's still on site. You still have yeah. to get these people together. But now, I mean, this costs. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but, but more people will be doing it and bigger shows will be doing it. That traditional way of doing things is going, isn't it? It looks like cinema's going to struggle to come back to its former level, you know. Um, well, it's going to be... Of course, it's a massive shame, and we've been up at the the environments uh, telling us this things are going to change, you know. So we have to adapt and change with them. I think that every every ten years or twenty years, anyway, you get a technology shift. Mm. And so now we're getting a technology shift, probably coupled with uh, environmental shift as well. <laughs> so you've got to adapt and figure yeah. out. Oh, and if you don't adapt and you stick to your old ways, you don't survive, do you? You know, you, you end up being doing something else. Yeah, I uh, think the only comforting thing is knowing that we're all in it together. <laughs> well, yeah, without a doubt, you know. But at the same time, you know, you've got to look at stuff like the pubs and go, well, if they can open a pub, then and have all those people in there. I mean, I, you know, I walked past one. It was packed last night. I was like, yeah. you know, from watching the football. I was like going, well, why can't you have people on a film set if yeah. you can all these people together? So the, these questions will be asked, but it's got to be given time. And of course, um, there's be pressure uh, from all, si- all sides of things. So I imagine things will open up again. They'll have to find a mm. practical way of dealing with it. Yeah. I'd like to know if the the theatres that have closed down, I mean, I, I'm from Southampton originally, so that the Nuffield Theatre and the Mayflower, two incredible theatres in Southampton, have been yeah. shut down. I wonder whether or not permanently there will be... Down or, or, or they're re- re- permanently. done, yeah, permanently. Um, that's, that's, that's really sad, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the point. It's like, well, actually, in a year's time, will there be an option for you know, the owners to be able to, to buy it back or be able to, I, I don't know. I mean, it's such a dire situation with the UK theatres because, I mean, it was already quite difficult to get, you know, bums on seats in these theatres as, as it is, you know, and so suddenly it's like they are now no longer able to, I mean, they just can't open, you know, they can't afford their bills. Yeah. Um, I mean, imagine if you're a performer and you're looking out to the, yeah. the audience and you see like a gap in between every other chair or something. It, it just, it doesn't bear thinking about, yeah, well, the maybe, impact on the arts. Maybe they start to live stream everything that they do and do stuff like that. I know? thought that was a great idea with National Theatre, like, go and look at all of our stuff. And honestly, about an hour into it, I was just like, this isn't the same. It's no. just, it's, it's a three and a half hour performance as well. You're like, oh, I can't do this. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll put FIFA on. Yeah. <laughs> That was funny because when the first football like came back, there was like no no um, crowds, you know, noises, and everyone was a bit like, "This is really not the same." And then FIFA came along, and they were like, "Yeah, have our sounds." And now it's like football's back again. Yeah. Oh, that was close. <laughs> yeah. Well, goal. You know, yeah. it is strange, isn't it, mate? So look, what, what's your what's your 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 plans at the moment? What are you what are you excited about? Well, I'm working. Well, this is I, I've just you know I told you about my laziness problem i've quite enjoyed having to do nothing at all but i'm just starting to think now 
and this is a good time for me to write, so um, I should be writing. So I'm just going to pick up on a project which um, I had some interest and in. we had some meetings with a, a producer and Christopher Eccleston and a few of them. So we're going to start to work on a project that they were interested in. Um, and then I've got another project that I'm doing, I'm just starting to, which is an interesting thing, kind of like very contemporary, connects to the statues and stuff like that. And um, um, so the, the first black footballer, basically, who, who was denied his England cap. Yeah, I, I saw you, you shared a post on that the other day. I went and looked yeah. at it. So I'm working on a feature uh, based on that. And there's a, uh, a horror feature that we've got, which is we started writing, but the dad didn't think it was quite in the right place just yet. And then there's another project that we've got. Uh, so this is a, something for kind of a new, new filmmakers, I guess. You know, when I was first starting out, I used to get really married to one project and I'd be like, this is it, I'm going, you know, I'd write and I bring it to someone, and then they just go, no. And you go, oh, yeah. And then what I realized as you get more experience is you take um, a shorter synopsis or a treatment in, and you get a in, in buy in early, early on in that. And the, or you have four or five different ideas in, on the go that you can pitch to people. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've got four or five different scripts, but at the moment, because I've got spare time and there's nothing going on, I might as well write one of them because you're in a much stronger position if you've got a script to show someone. Right. Uh, so, um, it, and, then, the and then what else do you kind of do to, to pitch your, your projects to investors? You've got the script. Is there anything else that you do to try and tell the story? Well, tell, tell the it's not the. I, I don't think that um, people will very rarely buy into a, a film idea without seeing a script. It always comes to the script, and so you kind of at some point you need to to write the script. But the, you try to maneuver yourself into a position where you, you can get some um, money. fully and that's been paid you know what I mean mm -hmm. was that all coming through kind of like we kept getting an unstable thing there this is what we're all getting used to now Jason it's a little bit of huh, and this and that and in fact sometimes if I don't like what someone's saying I just freeze yeah okay and, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that usually works they just they, they move on to the next thing um yeah, but, well, I mean, here's the thing, Jason. I'm about to embark on my first um, serious, uh, semi-serious short film. Uh, we're shooting yeah. it in the warehouse. In fact, Corin is going to be uh, part of it. Um, it's okay. a two-day shoot, um, you know, very, very low budget, just about have enough to pay people. Um, what's your sort of um, best piece of advice for, for me as a director? Okay, well, then we go back to the early thing and go, well, you can tell us what it's about and what, you, what genre is it and what you want your audience to feel. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's um, about a young woman who unfortunately decides to end her own life. But before yeah. she does, she gets a phone call from a con man, a stranger who says, have you been involved in an accident recently? It wasn't your fault. And she says, yeah. I'm about to be. And, uh, you know, this is a lovely little um, five, six minute short about uh, redemption for basically the, the, the con man trying to coach this young woman back from the edge of the platform. Right, okay. And, you know, what I'm trying to basically say is if you pick up the phone and call someone, 
you may be able to save a life. Yeah, okay, that's good. And so kind of like, and yeah, it's perfect. Nice little short, the two-hander, is it? Well, this is it, of course, yeah, it sounds great before, but now I'm like, I've got to actually go and shoot the thing. I've got a train station and I've got this, uh, you well, know, this, this con man's location. The, um, there's a great two-hander, isn't there, that won the Oscar um, with Sally Hawkins in. And okay. Oh, I have to have a look at that. Have a look at that. And that's just, a, and you should have a look at that short film. Um, or maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> maybe you should make it your short first of all. Just bloody then, copy uh, it. <laughs> no, no. Just maybe just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's up to you, but it's kind of like it's, it's there. It's a different setup to yours, but it's kind of like it's in that similar territory where, you know, there's some that kind of drive. And so um, it's uh, actors' pieces. Um, because you that's more or less what you have to rely on mm -hmm. but you might get some good ways of shooting and kind of like and how you can kind of uh what they do on that one is you see one person but you don't see the second actor mm -hmm. so you only see oh, one. Oh, of course i've seen this at, at the bus stop right mm, no no it's not at the bus stop no 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 this is a samaritan's call one mm. the, the, this, this one so this is a, a, this is a samaritan's call right uh, right so, but you only see it, I think, from Sally Hawkins' POV. You don't see Jim Broadbent. Uh, but have a, look, have a look at that, um, uh, that short. That would be a good one. But, you know, I think it's clarity on what you want to say. Because if you've got clarity on what you want to say, then it's going to give that. You are going to be able to communicate what you want to say to a viewer. So to bring that full circle, that's the reason why you need to know what these anchors are. Mm -hmm. really straightforward it is basic stuff but you'd be amazed how many people forget it and particularly forget it when they start to make the films mm -hmm. and then even more so forget it when they're starting to edit their films because you've got to make tough choices and go okay is this telling the story i want to tell and if it's not can't, is it forwarding it are we doing repeat beats is mm -hmm. this you know because these are the things that the audiences don't forgive you for mm -hmm. um so i think that that's the important thing uh, and then kind of like we can go back to why we're doing it in the first place, which is to have fun and enjoy ourselves, right? And communicate these things and be a storyteller. Yeah, absolutely. I think from my point of view, you know, I, I as a, you know, 2012, I was at FutureWorks. My first year of FutureWorks, I did a Kickstarter campaign for a Harry Potter fan film. It went a little bit viral. And um, next thing you know, I was working for the North Face. And then I worked yeah. for Nike and Adidas and Coca-Cola. And I'm like, suddenly in the video marketing world. And I spent such a long time feeling like I was not doing what I really wanted to do that, you know, it took me moving into a warehouse with 20 creative people to really refine that creative side of myself. So, and it, and it was, uh, I had, I've had depression in the past where I've, I've felt these feelings. And so I really wanted to trivialize it a little bit. And, you know, cause people said to me, oh, why don't you have counseling? And I'm like, why would I want to speak to someone about my own issues? I know my issues, you know, I want to speak to filmmakers. I want to, to capture into, um, into something like an art form. Well, I mean, you can capture various things. I mean, there's, there is, uh, the, the other thing that I do with short films in particular is look for um, a theme that's going to be completely universal uh, or a, a theme, theme that is, um, how do you put it? So like a primal drive almost. Mm. So that people can really understand it and you kind of latch onto something like that. So love and greed and hate and all these things that you need to survive.
are um, great emotional pulls, and it's why they're done regularly and as a as genre, for example, you know, love stories are told over and over and over and over again. Revenge stories are told over and over and over and over again, you know. And so these kind of things, these primal drives, survival stories are told over and over again. So you kind mm -hmm. of like, so you're already on to the right territory for good drama, you know. It's mm -hmm. about how you do it now, you know, over to the filmmaker, isn't it? Well, uh, you, you've got experience in guerrilla shooting. Uh, I, I do have a, a train station in mind. It, it's one of the, the quietest train stations in, in the UK. I mean, yeah. got any advice there? Well, I mean, kind of like a, your your location, you can make that completely work for you, but I wouldn't even get hung up on it. I think that we have a, we have a six minute piece or a five minute piece and it's two people. It's about those, those uh, you know, people aren't going to be you don't want actually people going oh that's a lovely transportation <laughs> do you know what i mean in a way you want it to be about um people just completely fixated on what is happening between these two people and so the emotional pulls that you can have of where this is going is got what's going to be the interesting thing i, I would hazard a guess you know mm -hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I, I did approach a um, a YouTuber who's visited all train stations in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I asked him if he could uh, drop, you know, drop me some suggestions. So I went out to Swaley, which is on the east coast of the country, and it was the wrong train station. <laughs> it didn't, didn't have a train for about three hours. I, I got there. I was like, this is, I have to wait here for three hours now. <laughs> you have to get you but, but the thing is, if you've got somewhere, if you've got a great location, then that's, that's perfect, isn't it? You know, I think you can make you know actually with pavement the location was vital mm. um big corporate the, kind of feeling as well uh, you know small man big corporate yeah you wanted that thing but i also i needed a place that felt like it was in the city that we could control the traffic control footfall uh, to a certain extent drive vehicles in front of it and also you know so it was a bloody tough ask in, in mm. the end we used a new university building um but it was vital for that particular thing the the the, uh, the what had happened when i was doing the anti-fracking uh, documentary i made before we did in another life I, the cameraman said to me how much do you think it would cost to make this to build this as a set and i said well god if you're doing it as a film it'd be like three hundred thousand, you know mm -hmm. five hundred thousand to make this and that stuck in my mind so when the calais jungle thing popped up my filmmaker thing went that's a that's a film set we can use that natural environment for our own good it'll be just mm. an amazing backdrop to whatever story's going on and the, the story that we want to tell them in there and then do you ever, of, sorry do you, do you ever find a location or and then base a film on that do you ever sort of look at something and go oh that would look really cool um, I, th I suppose I have done in the earlier days, you know, of filmmaking, I would have done something like that and got up mm. because you kind of go in, you know, what can I get my hands on? You know, I made friends yeah. with people in the early days because they had a set of lights, you know what I mean? It was like going, you're my new best mate. Um, <laughs> so but that's the way that you've got to do it when you, you're starting out, isn't it? You kind of like, you know, we, we, we were making mates with uh, anybody who had camera kit uh, at one point, you know, to help us make our films. And we wanted to make them free, but you know, actually, that's some of the best times that I had was making stuff for absolutely nothing with no pressure on to do stuff. 
and then kind of like you know you can make your decisions everything's interconnected isn't it mm. but you, you, i think you know when we go it starts with the building blocks it's almost like a solid foundation for a house or something once you've got that solid foundation you can still start to build your house mm-hmm. so then you start to discover well are we going to have it in color or black and white and what's the significance of having it in black and white rather than color you know and then you know we had three different reasons for making in another life in black and white one of them was technical that it blended the footage together better so that was a tick you know the second one was it connected to what you wanted to say it was i thought oh, this is a black and white issue because uh the white nations in the uh, coming into these places and parachute out again whereas it's just all of the it's telling you about the imbalance of power in the world and how black nations and brown nations are penalized and kind of are treated as second-class citizens mm-hmm. that connected to the black and white thing and then the third thing was it reminded me of like concentration camps and old films that i'd seen you know kind of like so it reminded me of like old war films and stuff like that when i well, saw this list right yeah, and stuff like that. So you kind of go, well, the, so it's three valid reasons, I think, to make your film in black and white. It wasn't just that we went, oh, this will be arty. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that it was a bad move as far as kind of like getting people to watch your film because lots of people won't watch a film when they see it's in black and white. Interesting. As you said at the top, and actually we, we possibly sold, stopped us from getting a deal, but it was the right... Um, decision for the film i think for the you know absolutely well i mean here's the thing like we, we could talk about film all day every day i honestly think that i would want to start a filmmaking podcast where we just talk for three hours about it every day but um if you could give me uh you know maybe your your top film to go and watch maybe something you don't think i've seen um that that you could that you could point to and say you know what if you're a filmmaker you have to go and see this Well, I mean, um, there's all sorts of things that I suppose he kind of go. It's an interesting thing because there was a friend of mine and we were in a pub one day and he was great and he was going, uh, we're everybody was coming up with their, you know, pretentious films that we should go and see, you know, and there were these kind of art house things and, and he just went uh, back to the future. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I, I almost loved him more for saying that amongst, because there was all this, you know, scarf wearing fluttering chin scratching intellectuals about film and he just went oh back to the future great film legendary (laughs) but no but in seriousness um there's a few films that i would recommend if there's something and often actually it's documentaries that i kind of like go go to um there's certain films that have been influential for me manufacturing consent by noam chomsky is a very very good and interesting and relevant documentary for uh, figuring out where your political standpoint might be but that's about how um the mass media work as a way of suppressing information mm-hmm. in the west in particular and that's very relevant yeah that's a great documentary um happiness is a great comedy from todd salons I love that film and it's very, very dark. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. I've not, no. Happiness is very, very dark and got a brilliant cast. And so you, I think you'll enjoy that. And, but um, 
but be warned it goes into very very dark territory uh i'm trying to think I'll, I, my favorite films are in from the west west i'd be like a one flow of the cuckoo's nest i think mm -hmm. is amazing uh goodfellas is also amazing um yeah that's it really that'd be my there you go period. that's the rest of my lockdown period films to to come Comedy as well also have you seen sleeper by woody allen that's a favorite of mine i've not no no absolutely i mean this is why i like asking you know people what they watch because you know, there's so much to watch these days that you're not going to yeah. struggle to find anything. I always go back and watch stuff that I was watching when I was a kid, you know, so I always used to watch lots of those Woody Allen's comedies, which are, some of them are great. Sleeper and Love and Death are brilliant films. That's interesting you say that. I mean, recently I've been re-watching things that I watched when I was a kid. I watched Deep Impact the other day. Don't know if you've ever seen that. It's yeah. a disaster no. movie. I, I just thought... Um, I'm thinking, I've heard of it, yeah. Deep Impact, it has Morgan Freeman and it actually had um, Eliza Wood in it before right. he was Frodo. Um, yeah. And the visual effects were stunning. And I was like, wow, it was, yeah. it was for the day, you know? Yeah. But it's weird because there's some, some films don't age very well. I started um, watching The Player the other day and I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really. Like, I, don't, I was like, I, this is not how I remember it. I mean, <laughs> I know that some people love Robert Altman and think it's amazing but i was like no this is and i didn't some of the performances and tim robbins is brilliant of course but some of the supporting cast i was like mm? not what you remembered no it's not what i remembered <laughs> robbed yeah it felt really really dated kind of like you know 90s only 1990s i think but and it is 30 years now but you kind of was like this isn't how I remember this film at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, here's the thing: we, we've obviously got a bit of, um, you know, a bit of a dent in the in the normal timings of, of movies coming out. Obviously, Christopher Nolan's just pushed Tenant. It's going to be coming out now. You know, whenever cinemas are opening. But is there any movies on the horizon that you think um, are interesting to watch out for? I've not really been paying that much attention, to be honest. You know, because actually, nothing really much has been released. I mean, I, I, I nothing. What's interesting is because um, my son's like 14, 15, he's starting to get into, in, interested in film. And so he is actively asking me, you know, can, can we go back and watch this, Dad? Can we watch Godfather 1 and 2? I'm like, yeah, of course we can. Can we go and watch Apocalypse Now? I'm going, you're talking my yes. language. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, proud. But then, yeah, but, you know, Apocalypse Now is an incredible film. And actually the documentary in the making of Apocalypse Now is the heart of darkness I i've never seen it watch that that's brilliant that's absolutely brilliant i mean you get a, a real insight into what they did to go and try and make that the, that film stupid amount of money for mm. a minute you know what i mean and in today's budget terms it would be like you know 600 million or something like that Crazy. and it was um and they did everything practical and on location just great though yeah, uh, wouldn't you love that? Here you go, Jason. Here's six hundred million pounds. Yeah, and they'll go. Well, all right, I want a scene with twenty helicopters. Right, <laughs> twenty helicopters. Go, oh, brilliant. You know, it's just it's just but it's fascinating to watch. And then they had Harvey Keitel hired at the front end, and then they sacked Harvey Keitel and brought in. Um, forgot the name of the actor. Anyway, lead actor. <laughs> yeah, I need to know their names. We yeah, we know the story. We know Martin what we know what Sheen. happens. Martin Sheen. So they brought in Martin Sheen, but you know, it's kind of like just 
things that go wrong on a film set, obviously on a massive, massive scale, you know, but it's no different than, you know, the stuff that you'll be doing. Um, I'm saying that this is this no, no different. They're just communicating, you know, that at some point they were making films like we were making them, you know what I mean? And they were just kind of like getting together with their friends. They were all doing it. And then you, they gain confidence and they gain the confidence of other people. And that's how, you know, things progress, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, I think the kind of the main advice I think for filmmakers to have is that you need to start to understand the business side of it and how all the things work on it and how things films actually get made. Um, and you can't just kind of like pass all that off to the producer. You've got to understand a little bit of it yourself mm -hmm. uh, on how how it gets done. I mean, I think to a certain extent on in another life I was the fundraising producer on that i raised all of the capital for it um and so that taught me a lot but more but when it got to the business end of like trying to sell the film i wasn't so interested in that side of it but you know which is probably why it's taken five years to get to the screen <laughs> no but, but i mean that's that's the point it, right yeah, yeah. But did you watch it on amazon did you yeah absolutely Oh, that's great. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's good that it, it, now, you know, it was one of those things I could sat at home and watched it on my television and I knew that that film was a difficult, difficult film to make. Yeah. And so it was a little bit of satisfaction to go, you know, watch it. You know. There it is on Amazon Prime. I mean, do you, do you watch your movies and do you ever like re regret things? Do you ever go, oh, I wish I had done that or done that take again? Well, you know, it's really more things that you start to look at. When I was watching that, I was going, oh, I remember where we were doing, you know, I was thinking where we were. In, in, what you in had what for lunch. We, we had a brilliant, you know what? We, there, we, there was a film, there was a time when I started looking around at the, and we were having lunch at the, you know, it was everyone was eating and I was thinking, he's Syrian, he's from Eritrea, he's uh, Ethiopian, he's Irish. They're from, he's French, you know, I'm going, this is brilliant. We've got people from all over making this film and we've got absolutely no one over our shoulder on it. You know, we're just making whatever we want to make. And I thought this is well, how it should be. You know what I mean? A real kind absolutely. of lifetime. Uh, was just a real privilege to be able to make films anyway, but you're away and it started as nothing more than a, a, an idea that you had in a pub somewhere. I'm going to go and make this film, you know, and I think that's the beauty of it. I love that, the fact that, and then all of a sudden you've got 100 people on set doing a bloody riot scene with you, you know what I mean? Um, and that's how simple it is. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's anybody who's tried to organise a five-a-side football match will know how difficult <laughs> it is to get 10 people together. Never mind getting 100 people to come and be extras in a riot scene in your film, you know what I mean? And then how are you going to cater for all those people? So, man, we had people doing us favours all over the place. You know, we had the anti-fracking people doing helping build sets. We had all of the people there would then be extras in the film. And then we bring people in. We got mini buses to shift people <laughs> into people. It was incredible what we pulled off. And uh, I love it. it, it it's like, it's we amazing. We couldn't pay anyone. You know what I mean? All those extras couldn't be paid. Mm. It was, um, it's just brilliant you know you kind of do you, do you feel like uh, as a filmmaker are you are you an essential worker <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not an essential worker <laughs> you know because we, we know that we're the first ones to be cut we're kind of not essential to the 
you know, or we're certainly not seen that way. I think it's there, there is something essential about the arts, no doubt about it, you know, and, and it will, all of the things that we've discussed will come back and come back with a vengeance, you know. Uh, and I think, I remember whenever I go to universities and they ask me about filmmaking things and I'm talking, and I'm one of the first things that I will say is that survival is key. You've got, so everybody's got to find a way to survive through this period because we'll be back. It's just uh, going to be a tricky year. Mm -hmm. yeah. Find a way somehow to survive. Uh, don't go under. Keep, don't give up. And, you know, we'll be, we'll, we will return, no doubt about it. I love it. Well, look, Jason, mate, we could chat for days, but um, thank you so much for, 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 yeah, for just giving me the advice. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're working yeah. on next, mate. Yeah, and yeah, likewise, I, mean, I really want to see what you guys have been up to. And so, you know, I'd love to see what you're doing. And any help that I can give you, you guys in the future, I'm happy to do that. And anybody listening, actually, just get hold of me. How can we get hold of you, Jason? Well, I mean, kind of like most of the time on social media, just get hold of me and just kind of drop me a line if there's something that you 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 you, you want. I'm always happy to share um, because I know how difficult it is. I've got a lot of admiration for people who get up and go and make something because it's always difficult. Every single film is difficult to make. Well, there so, you go. Uh, You're going to get ploughed yeah. with loads of requests now. Jason, read my script. <laughs> Well, that's fine. You know, I mean, I'm not. I, you know what? I'm, I'm not the best script reader. I'm so I'm so <laughs> slow at reading some stuff. Often, I pass them on to people I work with uh, to read. But is you know, but also kind of like it's, it's um, scripts are tricky, aren't they? I think they kind of like you, you know, uh, uh, you sometimes you know when you've got. I don't know. I, I've I've never thought thought of myself as a script writer, but I've got better as time's gone on um you know so but yeah indated for scripts no indated with films yes send me your films i want to see what you've made send them all send them all well look, let's let's hope that we can kick start the uk's filmmaking industry again yeah man um you know something will happen someone's got yeah. to get you know it'd be interesting i would want to see um all the soaps um made on <laughs> zoom <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I, I don't doubt it, my friend. I don't doubt it. Listen, thank you so much, Jason. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful day, mate. Cheers, mate. Cheers, girl.